Welcome back to the Evidence-Based Rheumatology Podcast, where each week we critically analyze one paper in the medical literature. I'm your host, Michael Putman, and this is Episode 12, the 2015 American College of Rheumatology Workforce Study, Supply and Demand Projections of Adult Rheumatology Workforce, 2015 to 2030. This was published in February of 2018 in Arthritis Care and Research. It addresses an important topic for all of us and has been much in the news. I've been calling it the Rheumageddon because, to be honest, that's kind of the coverage that it's been receiving. Not to pour cold water on that, but I'm looking forward to talking about it and possibly tempering some of your dire expectations. Now, before I get into the background, I would like to give you some highlights from the abstract. I'm actually not a fan of abstracts. This may come as something of a surprise, but I try not to read them, if at all possible. I teach an evidence-based medicine class right now as a fellow, and I tell my students to try not to read them as well. Before I go on, I should probably explain this, because it's one of my more controversial opinions. There's a couple of reasons I don't think the abstracts are something you should read. The first is that you can't possibly understand the methodology of a paper from reading the abstract. If you don't know the methodology, you can't possibly understand the weaknesses. You can't know how it applies to your patients. And so reading the abstract is always something of an exercise in futility. Some people say they like to read the abstract so they get a summary before they read the paper itself. That's totally fine to me. If you want to read the abstract to get a preview, nothing wrong with that. But that wastes some time. And more often than not, people don't go on to read the paper itself. They get the abstract, they see the summary, and they say, I think I understand this paper, and move on with their lives. So this podcast is essentially dedicated to not doing that, but for once, I think it's important to read the abstract just to give you a sense of why people are so concerned about this. The abstract said that the goal of the study was to describe the character and composition of the 2015 adult rheumatology workforce and project supply and demand for clinical rheumatology care from 2015 to 2030. Let's skip their blurb about the methods because we'll talk about them in detail, but the results are interesting. They said that in 2015, the adult workforce, and this includes physicians, NPs, and PAs, was estimated to be 6,013 providers, providing 5,415 clinical FTEs. What's an FTE? This is a very important concept for the rest of this paper. It's a full-time equivalent. The idea being that one FTE is the amount of work that one rheumatologist would provide if they were doing a full patient schedule. At baseline, the paper says that the estimated demand exceeds the supply of clinical FTEs by 700, or 12.9%. By 2030, the supply of rheumatology clinical providers is projected to fall to 4,882, or only 4,051 FTEs. So that's from 5,415 FTEs now, to 4,051 FTEs then. That sounds like a big difference, and it is. The demand in 2030 is projected to exceed the supply by 4,133 clinical FTEs, or 102%. This 102% figure is what's given us the Rheumageddon. Though overall this is certainly an interesting paper, I think there's a lot of reason to be less concerned than those abstract numbers would make you believe. So for starters, this has been done before. In 2005, ACR conducted a similar workforce study. At that point, the demand was expected to go up by 46%, with a 1.2% increase in supply. As now, they are projecting the demand to exceed the supply by a significant number of rheumatologists. Currently, they're saying 4,000. At that point, 2,500. So, perhaps for this round, times are a little more dire. 
They point out that some things changed after their report. Five programs were added, fellowship spots were increased by 18%, and mid-level providers were introduced to the workforce in the form of NPs and PAs who received training specific to rheumatology. Consequently, we've more or less avoided the dramatic shortfall that they expected. I say more or less because, of course, there is still a shortfall, and because their original projections were for 2025, so we won't truly know for the next seven years, and if things start to really separate, it's possible that they were actually quite on point. Either way, the authors feel that it's time for another work study. A couple reasons. For one, there's a significant maldistribution of rheumatologists, where something like 90% practice in urban metropolitan areas. A second is that the baby boomer generation, which is the majority of the workforce currently, is looking to retire in the next couple years. And then finally, the authors assert that there will be a 28% increase in the rates of doctor-diagnosed arthritis by 2030. That's obviously an enormous increase in the amount of arthritis that will exist. And that was the first number that gave me pause, so let's talk about that 28%. The 28% comes from a 2013 study in the Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report. This study points out that 52 million patients, or 22.7% of the population, has what they call doctor-diagnosed arthritis. When I first heard that, I expected that meant that doctors were diagnosing the arthritis. That is not technically true. It's also not technically coming from a 2013 publication. The 2013 paper does say that there will be this increase of 28%, but they're referencing a paper from 2006 to get those numbers. The paper in 2006 is from some of the same authors, and it's called Projected U.S. Prevalence of Arthritis and Associated Arthritis Limitations. This 2006 paper relies on an annual, in-person, national, randomized, stratified survey of patients. Now, I like that the surveys were done in person, but they still had something like 30 to 40% of patients, depending on which year, declined to participate. That obviously opens you up to significant selection bias, because we just don't know what was different between the people who said that they would give the survey and the ones that said they wouldn't. I would presume that someone who has arthritis and is limited at baseline will be more willing to talk to someone about it than someone who's happy and healthy and running around their day and just isn't very interested. It's even more important to talk about how they actually got to this figure. So during these interviews, they asked patients the following question, and I quote, have you ever been told by a doctor or other health professional that you have some form of arthritis, rheumatoid arthritis, gout, SLE, or fibromyalgia. So right at the beginning, we should note that one of their projected demand figures comes from a 2006 survey of self-reported arthritis. And this arthritis could be pretty much anything, including fibromyalgia. With that for background, let's get on to the study. The workforce study group was a small core leadership group, and then they hired a consulting firm the Academy for Academic Leadership Consultants from Atlanta, Georgia, to help them with data collection procedures and guidance on how to do this kind of work. Data collection was somewhat broad. It was a mixed methods approach that they described. They asked a lot of sources, including AMA, ABIM, Rheumatology Nurses Society, and a lot of Census Bureau data to try and get their numbers. They then constructed a model and used this model to project demand and supply today and going forward. So the demand was brought from a variety of places, including care utilization patterns, the prevalence of disease, patient demographics. They also involved patients in this, which I think is helpful. They asked them what their perceived needs would be. I should note, though, that that doesn't necessarily mean that that's what the needs will be. It's good to involve patients in studies like this, but they're not necessarily any more knowledgeable than someone from the Census Bureau. 
From the supply side, they used a number of key factors that I thought were pretty reasonable. Geographic distribution, productivity, succession trends, etc. In projecting the decline in supply, they used three main factors. First was the increase in the number of retiring rheumatologists. Second was the projected increase in the percentage of female providers entering the workforce. And last was the number of rheumatology graduates who were expected to seek part-time employment as time went on. These last two deserve a little bit of further discussion. So female providers are more likely to be part-time, and this makes them more likely to provide less FTEs. Likewise, recent graduates are less likely to accept a job where they're working 50 or 60 hours a week and more likely to seek part-time employment. After describing some sensitivity testing that they did, they went on to explain their model. Unfortunately, they did not do so in any great depth. They do say that they included provider and patient demographic changes, trends in rheumatic diseases, changes in funding sources, growing demand for non-physician providers, compensation models, reported job satisfaction, and primary data collected from rheumatology providers, current fellows in training, etc. So there's a lot of factors, and I think that is pretty much everything that you want to include. I wish I could explain the methods in a little more detail, but unfortunately this paper didn't do that. So let's talk about the results. Of the demand factors that they included, the major driver was the aging of the U.S. population. In particular, they single out osteoarthritis. It's a disease of aging, and it's a disease of obesity, both of which are going up in America. On the supply side, the main things they cited were workforce practice trends, geographic distribution, and the changing demographic breakdown of new graduates entering the workforce. I think it's worth taking a moment to discuss the second part of this, the geographic distribution. There's a surprisingly large amount of variation in the number of rheumatologists per 100,000 patients depending on region. So where I work in the Great Lakes, there's currently two rheumatologists per 100,000 patients. That's a projection to go down to one by 2025. That's certainly a big change, but it's nothing like the changes expected in places like the Pacific Northwest, where the numbers are expected to go down to 0.5 providers per 100,000, or the Southeast, where it'll go down to 0.64 providers per 100,000. Finally, regarding the new graduates entering the workforce, based on their data, they estimate that there's 5,595 rheumatologists in circulation. By 2030, they expect that number to fall to 4,346. That's quite a big drop. No matter how you splice and dice these numbers, losing over 20% of your workforce is going to be felt. This really comes out when they compare the full-time equivalents today to what there will be in 2030. Today they estimate a 700 FTE deficit, which you know, equates to hiring 700 rheumatologists to fill the gaps. By 2030, they expect this to be 4,133 FTE. That is a lot. That's what we discussed in the abstract that's making everyone get so concerned. Now these numbers are what they call their base model, and they did a number of sensitivity analyses that I think are worth talking about now. So the base model assumed that there would be no change in the geographic distribution through 2030. I think that's more or less fair, but it's certainly possible that reimbursements would increase in rural areas or less desirable metropolises, and it's hard to really predict that. Another important thing is the number of retirements. They're assuming a 50% retirement of the workforce over the next 12 years. That is a really high number. One of their sensitivity analyses, they dropped this to 40%. That would definitely change the figures quite a bit. Another assumption in their base model that I think could certainly be revised upwards is the percentage of non-physician providers. So that's NPs and PAs. In their base model, they assume 2-5% increase of these providers, which is really not that much. 
PA students in particular could be trained relatively quickly to fill some of these gaps. So in one of their best case model assumptions, they increased this by 30%, which I think is pretty plausible. And then finally, to the part where I think the most flexibility is clearly here. Like I said before, their estimates of the increase in the prevalence of arthritis is based on this doctor-diagnosed number. If that figure, which I said at the beginning I was somewhat suspicious of, winds up lower, that would significantly influence the model. They're currently assuming that a quarter of a rheumatologist patient load will be osteoarthritis. That is quite a lot of osteoarthritis. And remember, this doesn't even include a sensitivity analysis for the number of fibromyalgia patients that they're assuming we see. So if we take the sensitivity analysis and assume all of the best things could happen, people see less OA, less people retire, fewer people take part-time jobs, what would the numbers look like? Well, the excess demand would go from over 100% to 11.7%. That is really not that bad when you think about it. That's about where we are right now. You have to remember the flip side of that coin. In the worst case scenario, if more people retired, if more people took part-time jobs, and we saw even more osteoarthritis, things get pretty ugly. In that case, the demand increases to about 140%. So what should we make of this? My take-home point is that there is probably going to be some increasing shortage of rheumatologists. Even under rosy estimates, things aren't going to get any better than they are now. And right now, a lot of people say it's hard to get in to see a rheumatologist. As usual, however, I don't think you should focus on the top-line numbers. For me, this study says that we're going to have to get creative in what rheumatologists are doing. Remember, rheumatoid arthritis, one of the most common inflammatory diseases we see, is around 1% of the population. Lupus is maybe half a percent. The rest of the various rare diseases we take care of is even less. So overall, the study is based on the assumption that we're going to be seeing this 25% of expected arthritis, when in reality the diseases at the core of rheumatology are probably less than 5%. I think that over time, it's reasonable to assume that primary care providers would give more of the care to fibromyalgia and osteoarthritis, or that nurse practitioners and PAs could help pick up some of that slack. I do think that those diseases are important and diseases that rheumatologists often have something to offer to, but I also don't think that it takes 10 years of training to treat stable osteoarthritis of the knee. For me, that's actually kind of an optimistic thing. I do see a possible future where I focus on a lot of diseases that are complicated and require all the training that we've done. Possible that this would actually be an improvement in the way we practice. Although I think that another side of this is that it's going to be really hard on patients who need to get in to see a rheumatologist. These are going to be especially true in areas where it's hard to get a rheumatologist to go. Fortunately, that's a hard situation for the primary care providers who will have to shoulder that load, and for the patients who can't get in to see a specialist to get the care they really need. So in conclusion, I think this is an interesting study, and I can see why people are concerned. I think there's a reasonable case to be more optimistic than we're thinking, but at the end of the day, we're probably going to have to accommodate some of these changes. That's it for this week. Thanks again for tuning in. Next week, we'll discuss an important trial in lupus, the one that's given us this addiction to Plaquenil. Hope you're all doing well, and have a great week.